you can go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to Psalm 24. We will read from there in just a few minutes. This morning, unfortunately, I have some horrible news to share with you. You may not have noticed, so I thought I would try and break it to you gently. Is everybody sitting down? You're not sitting down. You might want to sit down. Steal yourself for what I'm about to tell you. Are you ready? Here we go. Are you sure you're ready? Because I don't want people passing out or wailing or gnashing teeth for the rest of this sermon, alright? Are you ready? Yes? Y'all awake? This is what I want to share with you. Christianity is losing influence in our country. I see some shock over here. No, I really don't. I see some sarcastic shock. From the lack of shock on your faces, I'm assuming that that's not news to you. And don't misunderstand, I'm not trying to make light of that, what should be very sad news to us all. On the contrary, I want to use this non-news as a wake-up call to our church. You see, we bemoan the fact that Christianity is losing influence in our nation. But we fail to follow that up with introspection. For Christianity has no influence apart from Christians. Perhaps a better way to state it is Christians are losing their influence on our nation. Or maybe we could go a little deeper and say that Southern Baptists are losing their influence in our nation. Or, in a toe-crunching kind of way, Grace Covenant Baptist Church is losing its influence in our nation. But for the next four weeks, I challenge each of us to go even deeper. I challenge each of us to consider why we individually are losing influence in our nation. And during the next four weeks, I want each of us to consider that a big part of why we're losing that influence can be boiled down to one of two things. First, a misunderstanding of the one who leads us. Who is the Christ in Christian? And second, a life lived that does not reflect a right understanding of that leader. Steve Lawson says this, As a person's vision of God goes, so goes his life. One's life will never rise any higher than his thoughts about God. A high view of God will lead to high and holy living. On the other hand, a low view of God will lead to low living. No one can live any higher than his proper understanding of who God is. Now, From Psalm 24 this morning, we are going to ask the question, who is this King of glory? And as we consider the question, who is this King of glory, it would be helpful to define the term glory. A simple dictionary definition of glory is high renown or honor won by notable achievements. And with this definition, you might think of a great athlete's accomplishments or 
You might think of someone who invents a vaccine that saves millions of people. All of those, those things can bring glory to an individual. But this simple definition grossly understates the glory of God. The Greek word is doxa. Its basis meaning is that of an opinion. But in reference to God, it speaks of glory. Thus, Scripture's opinion of God is a glorious one. It is the attribution that we sing each week in the form of the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Him Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. There is only one who has ascribed that level of glory. And it is the King of glory of whom the psalmist speaks. As professing believers, we have sworn allegiance to this King. His is a kingdom where there is no room for divided loyalties. It is a kingdom where the one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not to fit to be in it. A king that calls for leaving houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for his namesake. A king that the world hates and loyalty to whom will result in that same world hating you. A king that promises, promises that by following him, you will endure persecution. A king who says it is better to pluck out your eye and cut off your hand than to fall under his wrath. It would seem that many believers, professing believers, don't understand the one to whom they have sworn allegiance. Ligonier Ministries recently released the results of a state of theology survey. And it considered evangelicals' beliefs concerning Christianity. In that survey, we learned a few things. Number one, 51% of evangelicals, over half, agree with the statement that God accepts the worship of all religions. That's evangelicals. And only 64%, so 36% disagree, only 64% agree with the statement that there will be a time when Jesus Christ comes to judge all the people who have lived. Now imagine someone leaving their father or mother or lands or children or brothers and sisters to follow someone when they could just as easily follow someone else who doesn't require such a sacrifice and the worship of whom is equally valid. Why would you give up your father and mother if you don't have to? Imagine taking your work seriously. If no one's coming to judge your efforts and to either reward you or punish you on the basis of the quality or lack thereof, imagine following such a leader. Now, we must look to the Scriptures to correct these misunderstandings of, of this King of glory. We will start in Psalm 24, where the psalmist describes a mighty king. A king who is mighty in creation. A king who is mighty in righteousness. And a king who is mighty in battle. 
This psalm will serve as the basis for our next four weeks of study. The Scriptures will answer the question, who is this King of Glory? Who is He? He's a mighty King. He is a holy King. He is a servant King. And He is a coming King. Today we will consider this King of Glory as the mighty King. Specifically, Psalm 24 proclaims His power related to His creation. And I want us to consider three things concerning this King of glory and His creation. I want us to consider, number one, His power of creation. Number two, His power over creation. And number three, His power as the reason for creation. So follow along with me as I read from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world, and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. And lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For what reason? Because He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the river, the rivers. This is a declaration of both the Lord's might and His rule. He has created, and therefore He rules over His creation. In a few minutes, we will consider the absolute extent of the Lord's reign. But for now, let's consider what God's Word says about His creative work, His power of creation. In Genesis 1.1, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the rest of chapter 1 describes the nothingness prior to God's creative decree. There was no light until God spoke it into existence. No earth or other planets, no sun or other stars, no plants, no animals, Nothing. Not even a Big Bang singularity. Nothing except God. Theologians describe this creative act act as ex nihilo, from the Latin meaning out of nothing. That is what God created from, from nothing. Additionally, chapter 1 describes six days of creation. Days with morning and evening. In other words, normal 
24-hour days in which all of God's creative activity took place. Now, much is made in dispute of literal 24-hour days by the fact that the sun and moon didn't exist until day four. How can that be? How could we have a 24-hour day if a day is defined as the time it takes for earth to rotate fully once on its axis and morning and night come about as portions of the earth are pointed towards or away from the sun? There is no sun. How can we argue that at a minimum the first three days are literal days when there was no sun? That would be a great question, except that Scripture already answers it. God knows how long a day is without any help from a sun or stars or moon. He doesn't need those things to help him keep track of things. But man does. And in verse 14, we learn why we have lights in the heaven, sun, moon, and stars. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, to separate the day from the night. Note that there was already day and night. The stars, moon, and sun separate them. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. It is very interesting to note that Scripture does not say that God placed the sun in the sky to provide warmth or to facilitate the photosynthesis of food. That, by the way, was created on day three, before there was a sun or moon or stars. Now, if you believe in a literal six days of creation, six 24-hour days, you, you could certainly conclude that just 24 hours passed between the creation of plant life and the creation of the sun, and plants could certainly survive one day, without that photosynthetic effect of the sun. But consider that Scripture doesn't say that that is the sun's purpose. And consider that God had already provided light on day one. And consider that in the eternal kingdom, there is no sun. For according to Revelation 21-23, the heavenly city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not trying to suggest that the placement of the sun 93 million miles away does not result in the perfect environment for man to survive and for plant life to thrive. I'm not questioning observational science that would determine that if there was no sun today, we would be popsicles. We would not exist. What I am saying, though, is that that is only the case because God chose to replace the day one light, which, by the way, would have provided the warmth and nourishment His creation needed. He replaced that with a day four light whose purpose is for signs, for seasons, for days, and for years. And just so happens, it also provides that warmth and that light to sustain what God has created. In the space between eternities, there is a need to track days and years. And that's why God has given us the sun and the moon and the stars. 
But in heaven, there is no need to track days and years. So there will be no sun or moon. God is not dependent upon the laws of nature. The laws of nature are dependent upon God. While modern science and even modern theologians dismiss the biblical narrative concerning the six 24-hour days in which all creative activity takes place, consider that the Bible hinges God's authority over the universe on the fact that God created the entire universe. If matter is eternal, as some would suggest, God did not create it. And the psalmist attributes the Lord's ownership of it based on Him creating it. The Creator has authority over His creation. (coughs) The potter has authority over His clay. God has authority over the entire universe because He created the entire universe. Before He created, there was nothing. And therefore, there is nothing over which God does not have rule. The Creator has power over His creation. And this includes the expectation of honor and obedience from creation. The heavens and sky do their part when the psalmist proclaims the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. This is a critically important concept. Not because of challenges to that creative work from the world, but from a faulty understanding of who is the Creator and what is the created. Let me say that again. There is a faulty understanding of who the Creator is and what the created is. For you see in that same survey I mentioned just a few minutes ago, a shocking statistic was provided. 78% of U.S. evangelicals say that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 78%. Now, that should put a shock on your face. 78% of evangelicals believe something that was condemned as heresy 1,700 years ago at the Council of Nicaea. This statistic seems like it should be faulty, as apart from cults, all major Christian denominations hold to the eternality of God the Son. But, given the state of evangelicalism today, I'll give the survey the benefit of the doubt. Consider that Scripture attributes authority over creation on the basis of being creator. And Romans 1, verses 24 and 25 Tell us what God does with those who choose to worship created things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Returning to Colossians 1 a second time, though, we see the truth of the matter. In verse 16, while speaking of Christ, Paul writes, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Do not misunderstand. 
Christ is worthy to lead us because He created us. He is eternal. He is God. He is not a created being or He would hold no authority. In verse 17, Paul goes on to describe Christ as both preceding all creation and exercising power over that creation. He, meaning Christ, is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. Now this is a nice verse for a segue into our next point. The King of Glory's power over creation. You see, this this King of Glory is not the God of the deists. He is not merely a transcendent God who wound up the universe and left it to tick on its own. While He certainly transcends His creation, both in space and time, Scripture describes Him as an imminent God as well. One who remains intimately involved in His creation and controls His creation to accomplish all of His will. When Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of His will, all things include many things, including whether or not the sun sets in the sky, including the effect of a blow from a staff on the water content of a rock. He controls the natural response of hungry lions to the introduction of easy prey. He controls the wind and the waves. He controls the buoyancy of an axe head or an apostle's feet. He controls the decaying effects of death. He controls the alcoholic content of water. He controls the consuming power of a raging furnace. He controls the strength in one's legs to enable one to walk who hasn't walked from birth. He controls the descent of fire and brimstone. He controls the salt content of a woman who looks back. He controls the reproductive capabilities of a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man. He controls the blood content of the Nile. He controls the ability of a staff to slither and swallow other slithering staffs. He controls the destructive power of a trumpet sound. He controls the eloquence of a donkey. He controls the ability of five loaves and two fishes to feed 5,000 men. He controls the ability to pay one's taxes by catching a fish. He controls the sanity of a demoniac. He controls the bleeding of a woman. He controls the ability of a person to understand someone speaking another language. And he causes a person to babble. He controls a fig tree's ability to produce figs. And he controls the life-saving power of lamb's blood on a doorpost. And all things include the makeup of a man's heart. Is it stone or is it flesh? All things include the level of obedience to God's statutes that a man exhibits 
Does he persevere or does he fall away? You see, God has power over his creation. And we are part of that creation. People shout hallelujah over the raising of Lazarus from the dead, but they reject the notion that God did the same thing with them, those who are spiritually dead today. If you have no problem saying amen to the first 27 things I mentioned that demonstrate God's authority over His creation, why would you struggle with the last two? The God who raised Lazarus from physical death raises His people from spiritual death. He has mercy on whom He has mercy. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He is the potter and we are the clay. In Psalm 135, we read of God's continued involvement in and power over His creation. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from His storehouses. <coughs> the God who causes an axe head to float, causes a dead man to come alive and repent and believe. If you're not a believer this morning, my prayer is that God is giving life to your dead soul, to your dead spirit. That He is calling you into His marvelous light. That He will show you mercy today. Finally, we will consider the King of Glory's power in the reason for creation. Consider the sheer vastness of the universe. If, if any of you are interested in astronomy, you have an appreciation for the billions upon billions of stars in the sky spread across a universe that's unfathomable. You cannot begin to understand the size of the universe. The outer reaches of just our solar system are 4.7 billion miles from Earth. That's just our solar system. And it's one of billions. Why such vastness? Man can't comprehend such a vastness. And not even such a vastness can compare to the vastness separating the power of God and the power of His creation. In Psalm 19.1, David sings, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. The sheer immensity of the universe demonstrates God's glory. And Scripture declares that is its purpose. Returning to Colossians 1 a third time, we read of Christ as both Creator and the reason for creation. Verse 16 declares, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Now reflect on that for just a moment. The entire universe, not only the stars and the planets, not only the plants and the animals, but the things to which we mistakenly attribute power to thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, created by Jesus Christ. And not 
just created by Him, but for Him. When we read God's Word, we marvel at His power of creation, and we marvel at His power over creation. But the greatest demonstration of His power is the reason for that creation. All of that glory belongs to God. The reason for God creating and demonstrating His power over creation is for His glory. And we see that throughout Scripture. We read of physical ailments that exist for God's glory. In John 9, we read of a man born blind. Why? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? No. For God's glory. In John 11, when Jesus is told of Lazarus' illness, He proclaims, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Lazarus does die. And in fact, Jesus intentionally hangs around another two days before he goes into the city. to Make sure he's good and dead. Why? Because that brings God glory. Without question, Lazarus is dead. He has no brain activity. He is rotting in the grave. And yet, when Jesus calls him, he has no decay. And he has life in him. Jesus tells Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? We read of a tyrant's rise to power for God's glory. In Exodus 9, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself, on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Like that, like a snap, and he could have wiped out the Egyptians and solved his slavery problem of his people. But that's not what he did. In fact, he raised up Pharaoh to power to enslave his people. Why? For this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Salvation is from the Lord. God's demonstration of mercy is for God's glory. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 48, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Anything good that comes is for God's glory. Jesus commands in Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Even the evil man and the evil that man does bring glory. God. In Proverbs 16.4, Solomon writes, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, 
even the wicked, for the day of trouble. Consider that the greatest evil ever committed was the murder of Jesus, the only perfectly sinless man. And yet, through that death, God achieved the salvation of His people. And Scripture declares that all of those events that occurred can be described as the carrying out of whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. In short, everything is for God's glory. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Nothing in creation happens apart from God's purpose. Because creation itself and all of the events occurring within it is God's purpose. And God's purpose is His glory. So who is this King of glory? He is the Creator of all things. He is the Sustainer of all things. And He is the Worker of all things to His glory. Charles Spurgeon declared, The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God, is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. In 2 Kings 6, we read of the thwarted efforts of the king of Syria. The king of Israel somehow kept knowing his position and avoiding his army. And the king of Syria was getting kind of frustrated with that, so much so that he thought he had spies in his ranks who were going and telling the king of Israel his secrets. But no, he didn't have spies in his ranks. Unfortunately for him, he had an Elisha problem. You see, Elisha was the servant of God. And one of the king of Syria's servants tells him, Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. It seems that an omniscient, omnipresent God makes a pretty good spy. So, the king of Syria sends a mighty army and surrounds Dothan, because that's where Elisha was. And Elisha's servant looks in horror at this approaching army and the fact that they're surrounded. And he cries out, Alas, my master, what shall we do? But Elisha was calm. And he told his servant, Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed that his servant might see. And the Lord opened his eyes. And he saw a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. This morning, are you the servant or are you Elisha? In your life, do you panic or cry out, What shall we do? Because life is too overwhelming. Or do you consider that if God is for you, no one can be against you. Do you see the diminishing influence of Christianity in our culture and assume that Satan is just too powerful? Or do you recall that Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? In your life, do you give up in your struggle against sin, believing it's hopeless? Maybe you were just born that way. 
Or do you hold to the truth that He that began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ? Praise be to God that our ultimate end does not depend upon our power, but on the One who fills the sky and the mountains and the whole earth with horses and chariots of fire. One who works all things according to the counsel of His will. One who created the entire universe from nothing and controls every microbe of that universe up to this day and forevermore. One who will not share His glory with another, but will fulfill every promise that He has made. This morning, if you have placed your faith in Christ, the King of glory, live your life in such a way that regardless of whatever befalls you, you are in the Father's hand. Despite the trials of life, you are in the Son's hand. And nothing can snatch you out of their hands. But, if you are here this morning and you have not placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have that assurance. You will walk this world alone and you will fail. You will stand in judgment against the King of glory. A holy King. A servant King. A Creator King. And you will have no defense your eternal life will be forfeit because you did not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, Scripture cries out, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do not wait another day to have Christ as your advocate, as your sword and shield, as your king. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Holy Father, there is none like You in all the world. The heavens declare Your glory. And we stand in awe at Your creative power, at Your power over Your creation. And Father, we praise You because You are the reason for all of it. All that is made, all that comes to pass glorifies You. And so, Father, help us to glorify Your name this morning. Help us to consider that You have given us an incomparable gift in sending Your Son to die for us. To live the life that we could never live so that we might have the righteousness of God. Father, You are a mighty King, but You are also a holy King. And Father, Scripture declares You as a servant king who has come and sent Your Son to seek and save that which is lost. And Father, we know that You will come again as the coming triumphant king when all enemies are defeated, including the last enemy of death. Father, we pray Jesus come quickly. It's in His name I pray. Amen.